So because of the change and everything, we're going to forego a children's sermon message today. Um, but we are going to continue in the Psalms, although it'll take us a little while before we get there, but we'll eventually get to Psalm 139, if you want to turn there. Uh, when I first heard the news, I got a text from a friend Friday at about, I don't know, 10.30 or 11, uh, saying that it's over, and I immediately knew what he meant. And uh, we were, you know, and if you don't know this, our family sells fireworks as a little family business, so Cooper and I were sitting in a tent in Shano. And the song that came into my mind was Ding Dong, the Witch is Dead. <laughs> uh, but what an unexpected blessing. You all know that when Donald Trump was elected, or, or even leading up to it, one of the things that those who think that murdering unborn children is a right were saying is that if he gets elected, he'll have the opportunity to appoint at least one judge to the Supreme Court, maybe two, and that could be the end of Roe. How many of you believed it? I didn't. I thought Donald Trump was a big fat liar. Um, and I didn't think it would, the Supreme Court, because they've been so disappointing, would ever do it. And praise God, I've never been more happy to be wrong. So what an unexpected blessing. What a joy. All glory and honor to God. All right, I need to do a few things before we get to Psalm 139. One of the things I want to do is defend the need to preach politics. Second, I want to give some background to how we got to 1973 and Roe versus Wade, and then we'll get to Psalm 139. So, Politics belongs in the pulpit. Right. Seriously. I don't mean politics as far as like political hackery. I don't mean preaching politics in such a way that I only preach what you want to hear because I know where you're at politically and I just get more kudos for that. I seem to be bold. But I'm really not, because I'm just tickling your ears with your politics. I mean that we need to bring the word of God to bear on our conscience in political issues. Why? Well, it's biblical. The prophets in the Old Testament, Daniel, as a par excellence, were deeply involved politically and preached politics. John the Baptist got his head cut off for preaching against the immorality of the head of the political body, the sexual immorality. Jesus Christ spoke openly and publicly against the sins of the political leaders of his day. I think we can say that his execution was large part political. And then, of course, we have the apostles. Maybe Paul being the best example in Acts 17 as he debated with the philosophers publicly about their folly of their political gods. Second, 
We are commanded to love our neighbor. And there are many things in our world that affect our neighbors. I can't think of anything more than politics that affects our neighbors. And yet we should remain silent about that area in the pulpit? It's part of loving our neighbor to deal Christianly with politics. Third, it's discipline. We have political leaders in our congregation. The church throughout its history has example after example after example of pastors boldly rebuking the sins of the political leaders who were sitting right there in front of them. I've given you some examples. One time where the preacher, I can't remember who it was. I'll have to look it up for you. If you look, watch my uh, flannel theology, you'll see it. The, the uh, preacher was preaching, the king sitting there in his box talking as he's preaching. And the preacher asked him to stop once. He stopped. He continued preaching. The king did it again. He asked him to stop again. He's telling the king this. He stops, he starts preaching, the king starts talking again, and finally he says, it behooves you uh, small kings to shut their mouth when the lion of Judah is roaring. (laughs) We have to discipline in the area of politics. We have to discipline our voting. We have to apply scripture to how we vote. If we are not aware, your vote has consequences. And that Joe Biden got elected has dire consequences. Fourth, I think the reasons that people say politics shouldn't be in the pulpit, I've not yet heard a good one. Our reasons are often that we are just so nice as Christians. Now, that's not a bad thing necessarily, but it can be when we're talking about issues that deal with life and death. There is room for tact when we're talking about the slaughter of the unborn babies being torn apart in their mother's wombs, but I don't know that nice applies there. Can we have anything to do with those who think that killing unborn children is a good thing? I think mainly the church has lost any kind of courage. We don't want to offend. We care more about numbers and finances than we do about dealing with important topics of political uh, importance. And, and so we just have all kinds of unbelief in our king. And so we demand that our preachers be quiet. And I want to commend you here because I do not feel like that at Pine Grove. There are so many pastors who have to be quiet because the congregation demands it of them. Because they know they will catch all kinds of heck if they bring up anything that might be politically um, disagreeable. And the sheep bite and the shepherd is silent. And I feel often it's the opposite here. I have, I've said this before. There are some of you that I'm very grateful for that you encourage us pastors to be biblically faithful And I want to encourage you that if we ever aren't, you should raise all kinds of trouble for us. 
I think one of the greatest sins of the American evangelical church is that when a pastor preaches the truth, they get all over him. But when a pastor is being mealy-mouthed, when he's a wimp, they accept it and don't say boo. And they continue to attend his church year after year after year after year. And so we need to have enough of that. But so praise God for you. I'm very encouraged by this. All right, so that's that. If you have any issues with that, you can talk to Pastor Jeff. There are plenty of other churches that will never talk about these things. Maybe that's why we're at the way where we're at. Okay, let me give some historical background of how we got here. In the future, when history is being told about our era, especially the 20th century, if there's any truth left in the world, we'll be condemned for our bloodshed on an unimaginable scale. And it began with the world wars. World War I and World War II left 77 million people dead. Now, that, again, was due to our atheistic, materialistic, um, communistic ideology where we no longer value human life. But prior to those wars, all wars had been fought under the agreement with a commitment to avoid, if possible, the targeting of citizens and the indiscriminate killing of non-combatant citizens. But in World War One, of the 17 million fatalities due to the war, not counting just disease and starvation, just 17 million fatalities due to the fighting, 7 million were non-combatant citizens. That was nothing compared to World War II. When both sides, the Axis, the evil, and the allies, the good guys, targeted as a part of their strategy the killing of non-combatant citizens. In fact, the Allies, not talking about Nagasaki, or what's the two cities that the atomic bombs were? Yeah, yeah, yeah. On one German city of Cologne, 50 million tons of bombs were dropped on it, trying to kill citizens by us. Sixteen million fatalities in World War II. Forty million were non-combatant citizens. <laughs> that set the stage for what would follow in the rest of the 20th century, the 1900s. We turned from nations going to war and soldiers killing soldiers to now nations going to war and soldiers killing citizens to then rulers killing their own citizens. After World War II, Joseph Stalin in Russia murdered 60 million of his own citizens. We can't even fathom that number, can you? Not to be undone, Chairman Mao in the Communist Revolution in China killed between 40 and 100 million of his own people. Pol Pot in Cambodia 
with a much smaller population, murdered 2 million of his citizens, 25% of his population. World wars killed 77 million. Communism killed over 100 million in the 19th century. But that was nothing compared to what would follow. Soldiers killed soldiers. Soldiers killed civilians. Rulers killed their people. And now, not to be undone, we boast worldwide in fathers and mothers murdering their own children to the tune of 1.6 billion surgical abortions worldwide. That stat comes from the Guttmacher Institute, which is the research arm of Planned Parenthood. 1.6 billion, likely underreported, because you can't really count China's counting, 1.6 billion murders. The Holocaust of abortion. What you might be surprised to know is that Roe didn't begin abortion. Man, if if you read any history at all, people have always killed their children. I, I, I mean, in early, early Christian times, you had prohibitions against women taking medicines to try to kill her unborn child. This is nothing new. But in our day, the, in modern times, before mothers and fathers began paying surgeon to cut, surgeons to cut their babies out of the womb, we began using birth control methods that had abortive properties, IUDs and the pill. This is well-established medically. In fact, when chemicals were developed to prohibit uh, conception, a side effect, a backup process was if a child was conceived, it would keep the mother's womb from allowing the baby to implant. And so in the first week of its life, the place that was supposed to give it life and to nourish it was inhospitable to it, and aborted it. During that time, they changed the legal definition of life from conception to implantation to accommodate that. This has always been a part of the abortion industry. They manipulate data and statistics and lies in the service of their bloodlust. And so what we know is birth control has always been a part of the killing of children. In the decades that followed this explosion of chemical birth control and abortion, abortions surgically began to happen. In the year before Roe v. Wade, 1973 and 1972, America aborted surgically 580-some thousand children. Why? Sexual freedom. The sexual revolution. The 50s and 60s and 70s. America had become so sexually immoral that it paved the way for this. 
there is so much to say about this. We don't have time. We could talk about sex-selective abortions. Females, little baby girls, are aborted at a much higher rate than males. You've heard about it. China, India, South Korea. There are millions and millions of more men than women because they have sex-selectively murdered the girls. How's that for feminism? You can take your feminism and shove it. It is a hatred of women. It destroys women. We have in vitro fertilization where a conceived human being is frozen. We have the harvesting of unborn baby body parts for fetal cell lines for scientific research and the production of medical products. We are a wicked people. Now, America is exceptional. It's really something. The blessing that God has put on our nation. The incredible good that America has been to the world, unlike any other nation. And yet we have this blood on our hands. On our hands. Well, Roe versus Wade came as a result of all of that. In 1973, a Texas woman, along with her doc, challenged legally a Texas state law prohibiting abortion. Before that time, every state of our union had laws outlawing abortion. Some as a um, felony offense with jail time. Those slowly began to change. And in 1973, with the court, it made its way to the Supreme Court, ruled, which is widely considered one of the most legally ridiculous ruling, applied the 14th Amendment, the right to privacy, to a woman's body for her to be able to make decisions. Ridiculously, they used the formation of a baby in trimesters to say that before the second trimester, before the baby was viable, in the first trimester, no laws could ever be made in any state prohibiting abortion. In the second trimester, laws might be made that could regulate but not prohibit. And in the third trimester, laws could be made that outlawed it but wasn't necessary. <laughs> so abortion, all of the laws in all of the states prohibiting or limiting abortion on that moment became No. Done. So since Roe, as I've said in America, not counting chemical abortions, surgical abortions only, we've murdered over 63 million unborn children. And to the glory of God, it is that perverse and wicked legal ruling that God, Friday morning through the Supreme Court, overturned. Isn't that something? Here's what Samuel Alito wrote. We hold that Roe and Casey, Casey was a later, I don't remember, 90s Supreme Court case, 80s, 90s, anybody remember? I think it's 90s. 92, okay, yeah. Casey was another abortion case that came that basically said that Roe is right. So we hold that Roe and Casey must be overruled. 
The Constitution makes no reference to abortion, and no such right is implicitly protected by any constitutional provision. Roe's defenders characterize the abortion rights as similar to the rights recognized in the past decisions involving matters such as intimate sexual relations, contraception, and marriage. But abortion is fundamentally different, as both Roe and Casey acknowledge, because it destroys what those decisions called fetal life and what the law now before us describes as an unborn human being. Roe was egregiously wrong from its start, its reasoning was exceptionally weak, and the decision has had damaging consequences, to say the least. And so Roe is gone. Now the effect of this, as I'm sure you're aware, is to push the issue back down to the states. From what I understand, 13 states have trigger laws that immediately go into effect outlawing abortion. And up to half of the states in our union have existing laws on the books that if they're followed will outlaw abortion. And it's speculated that more will follow. We can only hope so. Now, Dobbs doesn't say what it could have said. It does not say, that's the ruling that just came Friday, Dobbs, doesn't say that unborn children are from conception people. It doesn't say that. It could have. In 1975, Germany, its Supreme Court ruled that, that life begins at conception. We, we haven't. So we do not yet as a nation uphold the personhood of unborn children from conception and so that they have a right to life. We as Christians hold that dearly because that's what the Bible teaches God begins life when the sperm meets the eggs and he begins to knit that precious child together in the womb of his mother, as we'll see in Psalm 139. And so we should rejoice, though we have great shame. This is a very unexpected mercy, and I cannot but laugh at the means God used to get it. (laughs) It's really something. Uh, We know that Uh, President Bush appointed Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito. Praise God. Samuel Alito is the one who wrote the uh, majority opinion. And Clarence Thomas has been the tireless fighter for the last 30 years against abortion. And so praise God for those two men. And then President Trump. (laughs) I don't know what to say. He appointed three people. Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Barrett, all of whom have endured incredible abuse, lies, threats to their life, and they all stood firm. And glory to God. And then we have to give thanks to all of the work that has been done by the pro-life movement. The Catholic Church has, among all denominations, been the most staunch defender of human life. Thank God for them. Of course, you have the Protestant pro-life movement, crisis pregnancy centers, all of the work at abortion clinics, adoption, all of that. And we have the Federalist Society. If you don't know, they've been training judges to overturn Roe for decades. And, and, And there's just tons of money and prayers and boots on the ground. So praise God for it all. Praise God for it all. Now, I heard an analogy yesterday that we should think of this like Joshua and Israel going in and destroying Jericho. It was the first battle of the war won. 
there is still a war to fight. And the goodness of this war now is it comes home to our state. We have a Republican big majority in our state legislature. We have a vote coming up not too far for a new governor. It is not out of the realm of possibility that if we can work hard, the state of Wisconsin could make the murdering of unborn human beings created in God's image illegal. What is more, it should be called murder. It is murder. It is the unlawful ending of a human life, and it should be prosecuted as such, and that's how we should be praying. So I'll end the sermon with some ways to get involved, but for now... We give thanks to God. What a day. What a, what a glory. And in such a surprising way. Okay. So that's all background intro. I want to read a portion of Psalm 139. And then I want to say a few things about it. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Psalm 139. We will be reading verses 13 to 16. These will be familiar, I hope, to you. Let's rejoice in them. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. It is a beautiful sound, that baby crying, isn't it? <laughs> it's wonderful. Wonderful, I'm, I'm sure the mom bouncing doesn't, is that great? Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't bother us in the least. Well, it probably does some, but too bad. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Let me pray. Lord, let your steadfast love come to us. May you give us answers for those who would taunt. Teach us to trust in your word as the answer to all of this folly. May we keep your law, especially in regards to life. May we speak without shame before this world that you are a God who preserves life. Teach us the delight in this. Help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 139 itself is a song delighting in the God who sees and knows all, particularly applied to the God who sees and protects the lives of his people. It's meant to be a psalm of comfort and delight. It's somewhat of a double-edged sword. Because we know that knowing that God knows everything about us to the intimate detail means he knows our sin. He knows our thoughts. He knows our intents of our hearts better than we do. And so we must seek his cleansing. That's all that's happening in this psalm. But at the heart of it, right, what we read is this wondrous meditation, unlike any others, of God's creating of us from within our mother's wombs. This, this leads this song to the heights. 
It sings of God's precious knowledge, and not just that he kind of knows, but that he cares so intimately for us, so intricately for us that he knit us together with, as it were, his own hands in the most intimate, private place in the universe, the womb of our mother. And so we think Eve is the mother of all living. We think life. We think that even there, in this most mysterious a mysterious thing, God is at work forming us from the time that the sperm meets the egg. And so this song sings this. And this psalm then has long been precious in our fight against the murder of the unborn. We are created in God's image. And this song sings that well. This is the very thing that our world most hates. Why? Because the devil hates God. And since the devil can't touch God, he tries to touch those who bear his image. And he always, because he is such a sniveling coward, goes after the weakest and most vulnerable. Unborn children being knit together in their mother's womb. And so how can we destroy what God is creating? Well, from this text, one of the things that yells to you from it is God's creative power. He is the giver of life. He is fruitful. And one of the things we see in this Dobbs decision on Friday is God's sovereign agency. How many years have we been working to overturn this? Promising that if we just elect the next Republican president and he can install the next conservative Supreme Court justice, Roe will finally be overturned time and time and time again. This whole pro-life industry and millions and millions of dollars and all this effort, and then God just does it. Because in this, he does everything, doesn't he? He is the sovereign Lord. He is the Lord over all things. And this is one of our greatest delights as a Christian. And even in this meditation on God's formation, so intimately knitting us together in our mother's womb, we see that reality, that truth. God is sovereign. With him alone lies the power and agency to give and sustain and end life as he sees fit. There is no one like God. He forms our inward parts, it notes. He doesn't just form us in general. He forms our cells, connects those cells together in systems that work together. God designed and knits it all together. He sees all. Even in the womb, we're not hidden from him. Even when our form is yet unformed, he knows everything about our life. It says that all of our days are written in his book. Even before we've seen the light of day, he has written out, like the author of a novel, everything that will happen in our lives. I just want to hold up this reality that God is sovereign. That's what he's delighting in ultimately. And can't we see then what's happened on Friday? Is he not the king of kings who holds the 
kings of the earth in his hands and turns their hearts like a stream of water, whichever way he wills. Didn't we just see that? And so we want to give him glory for that. This is the testimony of scripture. God is sovereign. God is the source of all life. God knows our days before they are yet lived. God orders and controls everything. And that he is our God. This psalm is meant for God's people particularly to rejoice over God's specific, fatherly, personal, intimate care of our lives from conception through to our last breath. It's to give you great confidence, great comfort. And to fight for life. This is why Christians, among all religions, among all nations, have always fought for life. We see it throughout Scripture, don't we? The celebration of life. We see mothers who are unable to conceive, so sorrowful and full of shame, and then suddenly been able to have a baby and just rejoice. Of course, that's our Lord's birth, Joseph and Mary. Christians from the very beginning condemned abortion. In the Didache, one of the earliest Christians writing, they write, you shall not murder a child by abortion, nor kill that which is begotten. Tertullian in 197 AD, a Christian pastor. But for us Christians, since homicide has once for all been forbidden, it is not permitted, listen to this, to pull apart even what has been conceived in the womb. Prevention of birth is hastened homicide. Birth control is hastened homicide. Nor does it matter whether one tears away a life that has been born or pulls apart what uh, one in the midst of birth. He who will be a man is a man already. Do you understand that? The potential for life from concession means it's already what it will be. He who is a man is a man already. For indeed the entire fruit exists already in the seed. So from Psalm 139, throughout the Bible, we are creating God's image. Therefore, the Bible explicitly, consistently prohibits the unjust killing of any human being because we are creating God's image. Whoever sheds man blood, man's blood in Genesis 9, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he has made man. Women are uniquely given the ability to give life. Eve is the mother of all living. Listen to this, please, carefully. Life-giving is a woman's highest and most noble purpose. Now, in saying that, we do have to provide some measure of comfort for those mothers who would like to be mothers and are unable. And so, we must weep with them and mourn with them. And yet we want to continue to hold high this glorious truth that our world absolutely rages against. And maybe some of you do as well. That that statement is offensive to you only shows how far spiritually you're fallen from 
what God's word declares. You must repent of it. You must turn from your worldly carnal thinking. Women, along with Eve, can give life. And so God sanctifies birth. We see this in the birth of our own Lord. When Mary, pregnant with him, walks in to see Elizabeth, who's pregnant with John the Baptist, and the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaps at Mary's greeting. Isn't that glorious? And some of you have to be ashamed before your family for being pregnant. Isn't that sad? Murder is against God's character. Satan is a murderer from the beginning. God is the giver of life. He hates the shedding of innocent blood, particularly in Scripture, the blood of children. Children are a gift from the Lord. Why bring all of that up? Because that's what our culture hates. That's what the devil hates. That's what those who are of this world hate. But we want to glory in God. We want to glory in God for this decision on Friday, and we want to continue to glory in God who gives life. We want to glory in our sovereign God who raises up and tears down, who, as I said before, holds the king's heart in his hand and directs it like a stream of water wherever he wills. Proverbs 21.1. What happened on Friday is just another in the millions of instances in this world where God does as he pleases. So give him glory. After decades of fighting its row, Roe versus Wade, it has just ended. We should rejoice. We should rejoice in our God who does as he pleases. We should rejoice in our God who gives and sustains life. We should rejoice in our God who through the death of his son has given us eternal spiritual life forever in his presence and the forgiveness of all of our sins. Isn't that good news? But the nations rage, don't they? They hate what happened on Friday. In fact, we'll likely see a lot of violence in our nation because of it. It's already happened when the, uh, it was leaked. Tens of crisis pregnancy centers and other pro-life things have been attacked, firebombed, graffitied. Churches have been threatened. And so we must be ready for a fight. The most fundamental right that God has given us is the right to live. And Roe declared that that right, which is enshrined in our Constitution, is no right for an unborn child. Doctors who take an Hippocratic oath, part of which says, I shall never give a deadly drug, I shall never give a woman a drug for an abortion. Now regularly not only give drugs that abort unborn babies, but dismember them within their mother's wombs. Roe versus Wade diminished and removed women's moral agency. This is the very premise that feminism was built upon, that until women can have reproductive freedom, they can never be equal to men in moral agency. But feminism and abortion sets aside that claim. A mother can now not be judged for murdering her baby. Instead, a mother who pays to have her child murdered is viewed and demanded to only be viewed as a victim. She's a victim of patriarchal society. She's a victim of her boyfriend. She's a victim of her husband. She's a victim of her father. Men are blamed and condemned. 
So if a woman kills her child, she bears no guilt. But this is an anti-gospel, isn't it? I'm not saying that men don't bear guilt here. I'm saying that our demonic ideology keeps women from the kingdom of God because if there's no guilt, there's no repentance. If there's no repentance, there's no forgiveness. If there's no forgiveness, then they remain in their shame and guilt and we see it in all of the psychological destruction that is upon women in our society today. And so women are told that they're just victims. Here's what the pro-life movement says. This is the national right to life. Women are victims of abortion and require only our compassion and support. As national and state pro-life organization representing tens of millions of pro-life men, women, and children across the country, let us be careful. We state unequivocally that we do not support any measures seeking to criminalize or punish women. And we stand firmly opposed to include such penalties in our legislation. This fight is not over until abortion is counted as murder. Why? Because abortion destroys an innocent human being being knit together in the image of God in his mother's womb. Children have a right to life given by God and enshrined in our constitution. Even more so, look at what abortion does to society. We are a social people. There are 63 million human beings that we have not had the pleasure of knowing. Think of, if you want, the loss of potential. What would have those human beings contributed? What new technologies? What music? What marriages? It's all lost. How about economically? The average productivity in terms of contributions to gross domestic product of one worker per year is $130,000 annually. Over a lifetime of work, you typically contribute about $2 million to our gross domestic product, and we've murdered 63 million of us. And do not give in to the lie of overpopulation. It is such a demonic lie. I've said it before, we'll say it again. The entire world could live in the state of Texas with a home and acreage and still have plenty of room. <laughs> it's, it's just a lie. Abortion devalues life itself. Isn't one of our main problems in our society is that we do not value life. We don't see each other as human anymore. All of our interaction is now electronic even when people in a room, isn't that a part of this? So what Dobbs gives us is the opportunity to end this. Look at Psalm 139 again. Do you find it strange? I found it strange. After you read this, this just glorious high praise of God knitting us together in our mother's womb, in verses 13, 14, 15, 16, and then 17, immediately afterwards, verse 19, oh, that you would slay the wicked, Oh God, oh men of blood, depart from me. Verse 21, I hate those who hate you. He, he counts it as a virtue. Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? Why? Because they murder people. Because they shed the blood of innocence. 
Because they destroy what God is creating and how much more so an unborn child in the womb of his mother. So in summary, we rejoice over what God has done today. We rejoice that God's enemies are being further placed under the feet of his son. Here's what one abortion clinic in Texas hung on their door Friday morning. The Supreme Court passed a decision overturning Roe versus Wade at 9.10 this morning, making abortion immediately illegal in the state of Texas. We are no longer taking any appointments or seeing any patients in this clinic, and we are now officially closed. We apologize for this devastating news. <laughs> oh, gosh. I am I'm so petty, I just want to say na-na-na-boo-boo. You can't murder pe- babies anymore. Right. May, may we see signs like that all over our nation. So, the work isn't done. The work isn't done. What can we do going forward? What can we do to defend this innocent, defenseless life being knit together in the wombs of mothers? First, pray. Right. This is just a victory in a war. And one of the things, if you read war, I like reading war history, one of the faults that victorious uh, armies make is they don't pursue the enemy. They, they rest on winning the battle and it prolongs the, the war. We must pursue. So pray, love children. That's what's needed more than anything from the church of Jesus Christ. Love children. What somebody wrote after the decision on Friday that nine months from now we should see a whole bunch of babies born in churches. I think we got four or five right now scheduled in the next few months. Be fruitful. Husbands, don't withhold having your wives be fruitful. Adopt children. This is one of the things the left constantly says. You don't really love children. You don't do adopting, blah, blah, blah. Who does all the adopting but Christians? Who does all the fostering but Christians? Who starts all the crisis pregnancy centers but Christians? Who runs all the food banks and everything but Christians? Just tell them to shut up. Nobody loves children like Christians. But it must continue. So love children. If If your children are growing out of the home or something, spiritually father and mother children in our church. Cultivate an attitude of happiness and wonder and welcome to children. So pray, love children. Parents, love your children. Love your children. Enjoy them. Spend time with them. Discipline them. Raise them to love Jesus Christ. Love God yourself. Delight in your children. Don't be so cranky. Seriously, isn't that a wake-up call? Aren't your children a little, precious, a little more precious after Friday morning? Love them. Fourth, the church needs to be sexually pure. Abortion is the fruit of our demand for sexual immorality. Put to death your pornography. Put to death your lust. Put to death your fornicating, all of your sexual activity before marriage. Put to death adultery. Put to death sodomy, homosexuality, all other perversions. The church 
must be pure. Now, you know that we'll never be as pure as we want to be, but we need to be repenting. Fifth, figure out how you might get more engaged in the fight, particularly now that it's a fight for our state. Dobbs gives us the ability to outlaw abortion in our state. It's no longer a federal issue. It's a state issue. Go online. Please write this down. A church in a, in a denomination that's very near and dear to my heart, Evangel, has over the past several months already been writing a book about this issue, not knowing that this Dobbs decision was even in the hopper. They just released it yesterday. It's called Abortion and the Church by Evangel, Evangel, E-V-A-N-G-L Presbytery. It's over 100 pages. If you want to know all of the history to this, if you want to know the, the, the biblical, historical Christian position, if you want to know what to do going forward, th- this is going to be your best resource. Begin contacting our state legislatures, especially our local officials. C- city, county, state. The fight is ours now. Instead of a pro-life march in D.C., there should be one in Madison in January. And a bunch of us should be there. We should fund these things. We should be fighting for abortion to end in the state of Wisconsin. That's number five. Number six, evangelize. God is the God of life and that eternal. We live in a day of darkness where it's okay to murder unborn children. We need the light of the gospel to come to those who are in darkness. Have more compassion on your lost Family, friends, neighbors, co-workers. Get on your knees and plead for their turning. Proclaim the gospel. Seventh, rejoice. This is a happy day. This is a day to give glory to God. This is a day not to be quiet. This is a day to thank God for the 500,000 foster children in Christian homes. This is a day to praise God for the Crisis Pregnancy Center in Monaco who's trying to find a location here in Rhinelander. This is a day to praise God for Donald Trump and the justices with such boldness. This is a day to praise God for the overturning. So let's rejoice. Let's rejoice in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this gift. We thank you for the ending of Roe. We thank you for the possibility of other terrible Supreme Court decisions being overturned. We thank you for the possibility of of abortion being ended in our state. We continue to plead with you that we would hate our own sin, especially our sin in the area of sexuality. That men would be men, women would be women. That we would rejoice in the institution of marriage that we would see children as a blessing and a joy, that we would work hard in adoption and fostering and caring and protecting the lives of the unborn children. And so God, by your Holy Spirit, help us to figure out how we might engage in this fight. Thank you for the victory of getting. Thank you for toppling this idol and doing it so publicly. Thank you for humiliating your enemies. We plead with you for the turning of many of them to Christ. We ask for the silencing of our foes. We ask for the closing of any places that kill unborn children, the prosecution for murder. Father, please have mercy on us. We continue to pray your blessing on us, 
on us here, on our families, on our children, and uh, the protection of us in this war. Thank you for this blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.